You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Gaudiani on the podcast again. And this week, we're answering a question that somebody sent in that was asking, what happens to your muscles when you're in recovery? So we answer that question. But we do get on to a rather interesting discussion afterwards. We're talking about the effects of malnutrition on people's bodies and that regardless of what your body size is, you can be in malnutrition and that can be having an effect. And so we really finished this podcast on a conversation about how and why a person can have an eating disorder and be malnourished in any size body. So make sure you listen till the end, because I think that's such an important thing for people to understand. But anyway, the question that we're initially going to answer was, what can we expect of our muscular system when we're in recovery? Here's Dr. Gaudiani. I love this question, because I actually get it quite a lot from my patients as well. And I think there's a lot to be brought to our concerned listeners that gives the best science as well as the best, most positive recovery-oriented support too. So let's just start by thinking about what happens to our muscles during an eating disorder. And as your listeners hopefully know, I am a weight-inclusive provider, and when I talk about what happens to muscles during eating disorders, I'm really including everybody because there are aspects of restrictive eating to all of the eating disorders. So let's be sure that we understand that when someone does not nourish their body enough for any stretch of time, their muscles are going to start wasting. And the reason for that is that our brain has to run on glucose. And our food that we eat, specifically the carbohydrates we eat, which are such a vital part of our consumption, digest down into glucose. So when someone's not eating enough, their body is first going to try to use any stores of glucose or glycogen that the body has. And then when that's run out, the only thing our amazing bodies can do to get the fuel needed to keep our brains running is to break down our muscle mass. So I'll just point out for anybody who might be tempted that the so-called keto diet, where people eat really low carbohydrates, directly causes this to happen. Even if someone is eating generally enough calories, eating very, very low carbohydrates forces one to break down their muscle mass fueled by fat in order to synthesize glucose to run the brain. And as I recently heard in a really good lecture with a good exercise physiologist, this basically is a terrible plan for any body, certainly any athlete. And if the side effect is a very small amount of weight loss, it's totally, absolutely not worth it and not scientifically appropriate. So there is really only one evidence-based reason to go on the keto diet, and that's if you're a child with intractable seizures. Oh, wow. That's it. It's so popular, though. 
Yeah, and it's so unscientific. It's just another diet culture way of trying to control us through controlling our bodies. Um, but the, the point is, is that any restrictive eating pattern, and certainly things like the keto diet, cause us to lose muscle mass and put our body under tremendous strain. All right, so now let's imagine that we're in a space where we've got an eating disorder and we know that our muscles aren't as strong as they once were. And now we're really committed through fear to making strides in recovery. What's gonna happen with our muscles? And this can be a concern for someone who's never been athletic or for someone who has a history of being an athlete, or for someone who has a history of excessive and compulsive exercise. Many people wonder, what happens when I begin nourishing myself again? What will happen to my muscles? I've got quite a lot of data points on this because for the eight years that I was helping run a hospital program for patients with significant malnutrition as a result of anorexia, I answered this question all the time, and I watched daily how my patients' miraculous bodies began to recover when they were permitted rest and adequate nutrition. So the fear, I think let's name the fear, is that if I eat and rest, I'll just keep these weak muscles that I've gotten, and any body weight restoration won't contribute to my strength and my vitality. The good news is, this turns out not to be the case. And the key to remember is that our bodies know what our basic muscle mass is supposed to be. Uh, a child of 10 years old doesn't have to pump iron to develop the musculature of an 11-year-old. Their body naturally says, right, you're 11 now, we're going to make sure that you have the muscle mass of an 11-year-old. Similarly, our adult bodies know that we're not supposed to have um, really weak muscles. And I want to be cautious here and say, for those people with disabilities who do have weakened muscles in any part of their bodies, of course I hold space for the fact that that can be entirely congruent with health and wellness. So I just want to examine my own ableist perspective here for a moment and make an apology for the way that that came across. Imagining that we are beginning with somebody whose muscle mass has the capacity to return to their prior adult muscle mass, essentially your body knows. And so when you rest your body and you nourish well, one of the things that begins to come back is great muscle mass. You don't need to be exercising for it. You don't need to be lifting weights for it. Your body just knows. And this is a really good reminder because diet culture is constantly asking us to mistrust and over-control our bodies. The message is your body can't be trusted. You're going to have to wrangle it in any number of uncomfortable and complicated ways in order for it to behave. This is bullshit. It's just, that is not scientifically true, nor is it true in recovery. So we don't have to do wild and crazy things and really do everything perfectly in recovery. When we rest and nourish in a balanced way, satisfying our appetite, satisfying our body's energy needs, our beautiful body knows just what to do 
to bring back that muscle mass. Now, as someone recovers and they feel a little bit better and, and all of that, there are any number of ways in which they may re-engage in activities when safe that they used to love to do. And so if they used to love to be a hiker and they begin to be able to hike again, probably their hiking muscles will continue to strengthen particularly. But the key message is our body knows what to do with our muscles. Yeah, but I think that that's, um, it's that body trust thing that, um, when you say body trust, it sounds like the kind of thing that you might throw up on an Instagram meme, you know, like body trust, it kind of sounds really corny and cliche. But it, it really is a thing that's vital for health as well, that's what I've learned anyway. Because for having so many years of not trusting my body and just being part of that crew that, that's just brought into, I need to I need to manage this thing. I need to be on top of it. I need to, every second, I have to be shaping this body and I have to be managing my intake and all of those things. And now, you know, I don't do any of that and I'm way happier and healthier. Yeah. And it just feels like such a waste of time. And I often wonder, how the hell did we get there? As as a culture that we think that this is necessary. It's so sick and it, it's ongoing. You know, I'm really interested in the way that the word health has been grabbed and taken over by the diet industry. I, I really feel struck by the fact that when people talk about health now, as in you look so healthy or focus on your health or don't you want to be healthy, Unfortunately, the underlying message that the word healthy has become a proxy for is an image of someone who is lighter skinned, thinner bodied, young, able, cis, hetero. And we really have to challenge that. In particular, I have so many patients who have heard either bypassers in the street or their own family or their own physician say in the midst of their eating disorder gosh you look so healthy what do you do for your health you look you clearly are so well and that was really a confusing message for them because they knew they weren't acting in a way congruent with old-fashioned concepts of health and vitality and yet their physical body was being used as a stand-in for actual wellness. And so many of my patients, as they recover, actually get healthy and, and, and feel the difference between what their body looked like in its illness that was perceived as health and what actual vital wellness, the ability to live according to one's values, the ability to nourish and rest and not take your emotions out on your body. You know, they, they feel that difference, but it's really toxic and really confusing to patients. It's, it's certainly a cultural problem, and it's a problem that everybody, I think, on some level has to deal with and struggles with, but it's also heavily picked up by an eating disorder brain and, and held onto and that just that word that health and I often get that in emails like so won't I won't I stop being healthy if, if I allow myself to rest 
But it is ludicrous if you actually think about it logically. But it's not like that. Whoever wrote that email is alone in thinking that it's it's just that, as you said, it's this perception of health is often not health. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what you said about the word rest reminds me that a lot of my patients during their recovery feel exhausted, just whooped, and they think about how busy and overwhelmed they were with work, school, life, parenting, exercise, etc. prior, and then in recovery they say, why am I so fatigued? Is this wrong for my body since I'm so fatigued? And they think, am I allowed to rest as much as my body wants? Because that does not feel permissible. Or, I've rested for a week, that's enough, that's good, and then I've got to really get out there and I've, I've had my time. And the answer, once again, lies in a biological realm, which can help give validation to the lived experience and to the psychological need. So when bears hibernate because they have no access to nutrition throughout the winter, they sleep. During hibernation, they sleep because if they were up and about expending energy, they'd never survive. So we are programmed biologically as mammals when we're not nourishing ourselves well enough to get tired. It's purely biological that we want to go lie down in bed and not get out for a week or five <laughs> because our bodies know they are depleted and have to really save rare resources for survival. And I'm not talking about a particular body shape or size. This is true of patients in all body shapes and sizes. So it's really important to know that the exhaustion that comes with recovery is biological. And oftentimes, the numbing of an eating disorder can block people from realizing how exhausted they are. And it's not until they start nourishing and start resting that it hits them like a wave. That's biological. The only thing to do is to rest. Take as many naps as you need. Get really good sleep at night. Dramatically downshift responsibilities. And recognize that that need may be present for months. Because your beautiful mammal body is just trying to shepherd resources to get you back on your feet. And it needs you to rest to do that. It is so important for people to understand because, um, as you said, it does it does hit you like a wave, and it can go on for a very long time. And I know that in, in myself, when that happened to me, you know what what almost periodically what would come over me would be a panic of this isn't normal. It's not normal to be like this. It's not normal to rest this much. What's wrong with me? And I also, I also get that from people a lot, like, this is not normal, I'm resting an abnormal amount, and I just say there's nothing normal about malnutrition. You're not in a normal situation, so of course you are not being normal, quote-unquote. But I, I still remember myself, that panic that would suddenly come, it would just be like a jolt of like, no, I've got to, I've got to stop this, I've got to get up, I've got to do stuff, this is not normal. Um, and But then... There's a duality in most things, and then a part of my brain also knew, like, yeah, but this is what I need to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Open 
opening yourself up to listening to that inner wisdom and you can't access your inner wisdom you access Tabitha's wisdom you know that that's right and what I see is that when my patients deeply commit to nourishment and rest their bodies feel better faster you know they don't prolong the phase of the brain fog and the exhaustion and the misery deeply committing to what your body needs you to do amazingly enough makes it recover faster and makes you feel better faster and reminds you all of the fun things that you get to go and do with your body in the world yeah and an additional difficulty i think can be that um our culture doesn't necessarily um permit prolonged rest and even more so if you're not in an ultra thin body um, people's ability to understand that, not just um, friends and family, but you know, physicians, as you pointed out, the ability to understand that a body doesn't need to be ultra thin in order to be going through that, um, I think can be just added this other layer of difficulty for people who aren't in super thin bodies. It comes back to something that we talk about a lot, which is um, educating that um, you can have an eating disorder in any size body and that body diversity is actually a thing and that you can be underweight at any size. Yes. Mm -hmm. And malnourished at any size, even if your weight hasn't changed. I've, I see patients with restrictive eating disorders at all body weights and sizes. Sorry. And I find that I can remind each one of them that they can be malnourished and show the signs physiologically of starvation at any shape and size and if they have not lost weight. So I know that people really struggle with this. I know that we've probably covered it in the past, but if you would be able to just explain why you can be malnourished at any size, I think that would be really helpful. Great, absolutely. It's something I am super, super passionate about. We are mammals, and we have the mammalian brain, that cave person brain that I love to talk about, that evolved over the last 100,000 or so years to help us survive famine, where the vast majority of human evolution was spent in times of want, not plenty. So we really have perfected the part of our cave person brain that protects us and cherishes us and keeps us alive through inadequate energy intake. The reality is that a person of any body shape or size who is deliberately under eating, or even accidentally, of course, under eating what their body needs for its energy requirements will trigger that cave person brain because it doesn't know what's going on in the outside world. It's just assessing energy intake. And it will say, oh, I got you. I'll protect you. And so it starts showing signs of biological starvation. Everybody's is different, but chilliness, cold hands and feet, slowed digestion, brain fog, lack of concentration, um, poor skin, poor hair, all of these um, abnormal hormones, all of these are ways that our cave person brain tries to save our lives from malnutrition. So some people are genetically sort of set up to lose weight in the context of caloric restriction 
and they may show up with classic anorexia nervosa. Other people's brains have what I call survivor genetics, and their bodies are really good at protecting them from the ravages of famine, and they don't lose weight. In fact, oftentimes they gain because their body has slowed their metabolism and is vigorously trying to gain a little extra to protect the body from the next famine. So anyone of any size can be malnourished regardless of body size or weight loss and show medical signs of it. What's really important to remember is that good nutrition can reverse that. And that's why I'm such a health at every size provider and a weight inclusive provider. And we also have to remember the malign impact of the medical field and of society in general, because very often patients in larger bodies have been, have had imposed upon their young cave person brains, quote unquote diets and inadequate calories from their youth all in the name, once again, misguidedly, of so-called health. But of course, that sets up all of those mechanisms, all the brain thinks at age 10 or 11 when the pediatrician first puts you on a diet plan is, oh, we're growing up in a time of want. We'll make sure that any time we can possibly get access to reasonable nutrition, that will increase our body weight to protect us from this dangerous time. So it's so amazing. The wisdom of our cave person brain is that we're living in a dangerous time. And that's exactly what we know to be true from a social justice perspective. It is a dangerous time to live in a body because of the really toxic messages out there that don't honor body diversity. Amen to that. We always seem to wind up whatever a question is. It can be something that seems very biological, very medical. And we always seem to wind up coming back to body acceptance, fat acceptance, body diversity, and a social justice issue. Interesting, don't you think? Massive thanks to Dr. Gaudiani for chatting to me again today and Dr. Gaudiani is good enough to regularly come on and record a podcast with me. So do feel that you can send any questions that you have for Dr. Gaudiani, somebody who is a medical doctor specializing in eating disorders, to info at tabithafra.com. And I will send those along to her. And you never know, you could wind up with a podcast answering your question. Thank you for listening. Cheers. And until next time. Cheerio.